Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people out of their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. Father, may my words be acceptable in your sight. And may we, Lord, receive your word with faith today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, as Peter said, um, the text I'm taking this morning is, Above all, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. Uh, I'm reading the book of uh, Christian quotations at the moment. The one that struck me this week was from John Owen, a 17th century English Puritan, who said, No man preaches his own sermon well to others if he doth not first preach it to his own heart. thought this is true. Right, the heart. Did you know that in an average lifetime, the heart beats more than two and a half billion times? And it does it without pausing, without us telling it to because it's an involuntary muscle that we can't actually slow up or speed out. It's amazing, and it? it just keeps going. In fact, if you're 90, I don't know how many times it's uh, been beating. The Greeks knew about the heart. They called it the cardia, from, we, from which we get the word cardiac and tachycardia. And Aristotle, who of course was Greek, believed the heart was the seat of the soul and the center of a person. The Romans modified the word cardia, and they gave it the word core, which survives today in the term cordial greetings. So cordial means from the heart. Then the Germans got hold of it, and the Teutonic word core became hurten, from which we get the word heart. So it all goes back to cardia, cardiac, cordial, heart, all actually come from the same word, which of course is totally irrelevant to anything I'm going to say, but I thought... I'm a teacher, that's in my starter first. Where is your heart? Yeah, it's in the dead centre. I'm not dead, it's in the centre. The tip of the heart is shifted towards the left, which is why you can feel it more on that side, but actually it's in the centre. Right, how big is your heart? As big as a fist, that's right. Um, a horse generally has a bigger heart in relationship to its body, and apparently top athletes also have a slightly bigger heart. This will really educate you. The beating, the beating frequency is controlled by the balance of stimulation coming from the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches 
of the autonomic nervous system. Both nervous inputs of the heart converge on a small area of tissue on the right atrium called the senile atrial node. I want you to remember that. Okay, the, uh, the Hebrew word for heart was in fact apparently leb, pronounced actually labe, L-A-B, or it's pronounced leb. It's a form of labab, the heart. And it's used for the physical heart in the Bible, but also figuratively it's used for feelings, the will, even the intellect. It, it comes across in the Bible as meaning the centre of everything. And really, I've, only, I've got a few questions this morning. Um, are you guarding your heart? Have you guarded your heart? And how do you know what's in your heart? So, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the people of Israel, were promised a new heart. In Ezekiel 11:19, it says, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah 30, verses 31 to 34, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach their neighbor or their brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Then says the Lord to Ezekiel, they'll follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the promise in the Old Testament is a new heart. And of course a change of heart leads to a change in behaviour, to obeying the Lord. The Christian faith is fundamentally about a change of heart which leads to a change of behaviour. As I was brought up in evangelical Christianity, an awful lot of emphasis was about a change in belief. But actually, in the Bible, it's not. It's fundamentally about a change of heart. Jesus said, if you, lovely, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And what we do and whether we obey God shows what's in our heart. It shows whether we love him. There's no hiding place from the truth that um, if we don't do what Jesus wants, we don't love him. There's no other excuse, no explanation And if we backslide, if we fall into sin, it means our love has gone cold or our love has run dry. And we can come up with all sorts of other explanations, but when it comes to it, that's it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. And there is no point in saying so. Um, At Haywood, at the moment, we're looking at the letters to the churches in Revelation. And to Ephesus, the Lord says, yet this I hold against you, you've forsaken your first love. It's interesting that um, at the end of John, when Jesus meets Peter on the beach after the resurrection, he didn't say three times, Peter, do you believe in me? He said three times, Peter, do you love me? Judas betrayed Jesus, not because he didn't believe him anymore, but because he fell in love with money and therefore out of love with Jesus. Uh, A lot of other people in the Bible went wrong, Peter got scared and ran away and denied that he knew Jesus. Thomas refused to believe without proof, but both were restored by Jesus. The only one who um, wasn't restored is the one whose heart was somewhere else. His heart was with money. 
It's an interesting theme to follow through the Bible, by the way, how money and possessions take people away from God. So how do I know what's in my heart? By the way, this is point number three, in case you're wondering where I was going. There's a promise of a new heart. There was being born again, which is a change of heart. Now how do I know what's in my heart? Change of behaviour doesn't necessarily mean to change of heart. The law controls our behaviour, but it doesn't change our heart. I was thinking, I was brought up as a teenager in the 1960s, and I thought, why didn't I smoke cannabis? A lot of my friends did. Why didn't I take drugs such as Purple Hearts, if you remember those? They were around at the time. Why did I not act promiscuously when I was a teenager? Now, I became a Christian when I was 13 in 1966. So did I not do these things because I was a fine young Christian who was 100% for Jesus? Was I better than those who did? The answer, actually, is that no one ever offered me any. That's at least part of the answer. Now, whether I would have taken it, I don't know. I couldn't say for certain. I drank alcohol when I was underage. I smoked. So why wouldn't I have done those things? I don't know. Sometimes we think that we are... Um, we wouldn't say better than others, would we? But live a better lifestyle, simply because we don't have the opportunity to live any other kind of lifestyle. What you don't do and what you do do doesn't necessarily show what's in your heart. What do I long for? What do I look forward to? What do I think about? What do I put first in my spare time? What are my priorities? I'm facing this one at the moment with money because up till recently, uh, all the money that I earned really went on my children, my mortgage, my car, and up to November last year, I always owed some money. I still do owe a bit, but just a tiny bit on the mortgage. And it struck me, this is a real good test of my heart, isn't it? What am I going to do when I no longer owe money, but I'm earning far more than I need, which is the point I've reached now. Am I really generous in heart or just, just pay me tithe and a little bit extra when I need to? Because generosity is perhaps the key sign of a changed heart, it seems to me. General, a wonderful word, isn't it? Generosity. I love that word. For many of us, much of our life is prescribed by work, responsibilities and habit. Now, of course, we show our hearts in the way we carry these things out. But as well as never being given the opportunity to do certain things, I've got a reputation and a way of life to uphold, which means I have to act in certain ways. The question is, what do I do when these constraints on my life and behaviour are removed? And I've dealt with many young people who've had no, none of those constraints on their behaviour. And they keep, we, we put them right and they go wrong, we put them right and they go wrong. And I sometimes think, oh, why don't they behave like I do? Well, if I behaved in the way they do, I'd lose my job, I'd lose my reputation, I'd lose my family, I'd lose everything. It doesn't necessarily show what's in my heart. Years ago, when I was about 20, I worked in Hillingdon Hospital uh, in West London. And uh, I was in a cleaning job there. And um, I met this trainee Catholic missionary priest. He was Irish. 
And it was interesting because he kept bringing in these pornographic books. And he kept telling me he was going to see these pornographic films. And I said to him, but you're a trainee missionary priest. Why are you doing this? He said, well, I'm on holiday. I couldn't quite get hold of this, but that's what he told me. He was on holiday. He'd be holy when he got back doing his job. What do you do when you're on holiday, when you retire, when you're under no obligation? Is the Lord first in your heart? Are you guarding your heart? If I sound as I'm rambling, perhaps I am, I'm throwing out some ideas to say, how do you know what's in your heart? In Luke um, 14, various people made excuses for not going to a meal. They all, were, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. They're actually all very good reasons, weren't they? I mean, every one of those is a good reason. You can't say it's just an excuse. They're good reasons, but the wrong priorities. When I say I'm not coming, because I'm too tired, I'm not feeling well, I've got other things to do, would I apply the same rule if it's something I really wanted to do? Having had um, home groups in my house for many years, it's always interesting the reasons people give for not coming. And I think, well, I've got to come, I'm here, I live here. I may have a cold, I may be tired, I've just got in from work, I haven't washed up yet. If you look at the Jewish Sabbath laws, what the Jewish people did with the Sabbath wasn't a matter of rules, it's a matter of their hearts. Were they willing to give the first day of each week entirely to God? Remember back in 1971 when I first went to college, I went to Newcastle on Tyne. And I arrived there on September evening. The first thing I did that evening was put my bag in my room and go and find a church. And I went to this church, Pentecostal church as it happened, and um, after the service, no one spoke to me. And I stood there for half an hour until someone came and spoke to me. It must have been harder than half an hour. I mean, I'm thinking back. It seemed half an hour. Eventually, someone took pity on me and invited me back to their place. And I went to that church for three years. My first priority was to find a church. That's all I wanted to do. The first week, I went to Christian Union. It was dreadful. Stuck it out. They made me leader after the first year because they all left. At, those time, at that time, I knew what was in my heart. And I have to say that since then, I've not always guarded my heart as I should. Now, I know that was a load of rambling, but some ideas, how do you know what's in your heart? It's not necessarily because you do what you do, because maybe you have to do it. What do you do when you don't have to do it? What do you do when the restraints are taken away? What do you long for? What's really there? Jesus said that... Um, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. Be careful what you treasure, what you think about, listen to, value. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew chapter 7.20 says, by their fruit you will recognize them. The reason we read the story of Zacchaeus was this. I want to compare two stories, one of which we hadn't read. You probably know in Acts chapter 5, there's a story of Ananias, I think it's chapter 5, um, Ananias and Sapphira. 
And they saw, when the church was young and people were giving uh, things to the church and living communally, Ananias and Sapphira said, sold a field and they took some of the money, they brought it to the church and they said, this is what we got for the field. And Peter said to um, Ananias, why have you lied to God? That isn't all you've got for the field. You've got more than that, and you've kept some for yourself. And it says Ananias fell down and died. And then his wife Sapphira came along, and she also fell down and died. It's interesting, isn't it? Neither Zacchaeus nor Ananias and Sapphira gave everything. Zacchaeus didn't. He gave half of his property, then four times as much as cheap people. Have he kept some? And yet he was commended by God, commended by Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives for doing exactly the same as he did. For selling something and keeping some back. The difference was that Ananias, first, uh, that Zacchaeus didn't lie about anything, but it was Zacchaeus' heart. I, I don't think Jesus came in that day and said to him, you've got to give away a lot of your property and give to the poor. His heart response to the love of God was to give, was to be generous. Ananias' and Sapphira's was to be calculating. If we give this much, it will look pretty good, and then we'll keep the rest of ourselves, and we say we've given a lot and our reputation will be good. They lied about the price, but their hearts still valued the money first. They were trying to serve two masters, God and money. Zacchaeus wasn't. The law actually only demanded um, that Zacchaeus, in Leviticus 6, if you want to look it up at some time, uh, the law demanded that that if you cheat somebody, you give them back what you've uh, cheated, plus 20%. And he said, I'll give them four times as much. So his heart was not to be calculated and keep the law, but to be generous. You often hear football managers say that the other team won because they wanted it more. And one of the saddest stories in the Bible reflects this. This is from Genesis chapter 25. You know the story, the story of Jacob and Esau. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Jacob replied, first send me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, See that no one is sexually immoral or or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Sometimes make a lot of Jacob the cheater and deceiver, But the emphasis on the scripture is not on Jacob, it's on Esau. It's on Esau giving up his birthright, giving up God's favour, God's blessing and God's purpose for him and his family for a single meal. And he only sensed his needs for his father's and God's blessing when it was too late. How did he despise his birthright? Because food was more important to him. Esau had not guarded his heart. His heart was in the wrong place. His priorities were wrong. That's what that scripture is saying. What about us? Will we sell God's best for us for a bit of comfort, a bit of pleasure, a bit of entertainment, and a bit of money?
Because God's best for us will only come when we really want it. And um, when we really want it, we do something about it. I was at a, a church in Hexham some time ago, and um, they were talking about the spiritual gifts. And it says in the scripture, earnestly desire the spiritually gift, spiritual gifts. And I thought, what do I do when I earnestly desire something? Well, I know if I'm buying a new car or something, what do I do? I spend months researching, looking, checking, checking the internet, going to various garages, talking to people, trying to get the best price, trying to get the best deal. That's what I do when I earnestly desire something. What do I do with God's will? Do I earnestly desire that? Or tell me if you like God and I might do it. Depends. Got time. Check me diary. So, guard your heart. Well, actually, it's not just guarding our heart, is it? It's having God's heart. And where's God's heart? Well, God's heart is for the poor. In Isaiah 58, the Israelites thought they were doing all the right things to please God. Verse 2 says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Hey, perhaps they were earnestly desiring. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. But Isaiah actually says their hearts were far from God. And how was this shown? It was shown in their selfishness and their attitude to and treatment of the poor, the weak and the vulnerable. Verses 3 to 7 say this, Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Is not, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. They were doing all the right things. In fact, they were doing all the things most modern charismatic evangelical churches do. But their hearts weren't right. Their hearts were selfish. You get a similar kind of situation in 1 Samuel 13. When Saul thought that God wanted a sacrifice, just as the people in Isaiah 58, that got, uh, the people thought that God wanted fasting, praying and worship. And what happened was that Saul was waiting for Samuel to arrive and Samuel didn't come. So Saul decided that he would take Samuel's role and he would offer the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And then the key bit. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. God didn't want somebody who went through all the right rituals and um, tried to please him with sacrifices and, and all the other stuff. He wanted someone after his own heart. 
the man God chose, David, was far from perfect. And he did some dreadful things in his life. But he loved God and he knew God's heart. And in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, we've got to guard our hearts, but we've got to know God's heart, so that God's heart becomes our heart. We need a heart for God, and the heart of God. And Jesus confirms this in Matthew 25, when he talks about the sheep and the goats. That having the heart of God is shown in the way we treat the poor, the weak and the vulnerable. It has been said that I love Jesus as much as I love the one I love the least. Bit of a challenging thought really, isn't it? It's not actually in scripture, but it's an interesting one. Who do I love the least? That's how much I love God, because he said as much as you love the least of these. Last week we had some young people from our church presenting... Um, making presentations about uh, some mission work they'd done of various kinds. And one was a young woman called Yolanda. And she'd been uh, to Romania working with uh, children with AIDS and handicapped children. And she showed us some of the pictures of these children. And I thought, I'm not sure I could do that. But she'd taken Jesus' words to heart in as much as you do for the least of these. You do for me. Not people just like yourself, but people who are not like us. Love, generosity, is not calculating. It's the woman with the jar of ointment pouring it over Jesus' feet. It's not Judas standing by saying, that cost a whole week's wages, that could have gone to the poor. Judas was calculating. She was generous. It's not counting the cost. So in the book of Proverbs, often it seems like a collection of unconnected sayings. But with this passage that we read, chapter 4, it's not unconnected at all. Above above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. And take only ways that affirm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Our heart is the centre, the wellspring from which everything else in our life comes. If our well or spring is poisoned, those who use it will become infected and die. And from our heart comes what we say, in verse 24 in that passage, what we look at and aim for, our ambitions and priorities, in verse 25, what we do, the direction we take, the choices we make, in verses 26 and 27. Now, when it says, guard your heart, I've treated it so far as being my heart. But, of course, the church has a heart. Every church has a heart. Oh, hey, we're Baptists, we have a vision, or ideas of what we believe God wants for our church, for the future. And I've sat at Baptist church meetings for many, many years where we talk about having the mind of Christ. But as important and possibly more important than that is having the heart of Christ. 
And without the heart of Christ, all our plans and strategies turn this into little more than a, a spiritual social club or perhaps uh, social services if we're outward looking or vain attempts to please God. But do our hearts draw us together to pray, to fast, to encourage one another, to seek God and to love others sacrificially? You see, my natural inclination is to make sure my, comfortable and I com- my, sorry, my family and I are comfortable and well provided for first, then some of what's left over can go to people in need. But Isaiah 58 says, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, then. So above all, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Look after it. Feed it with good things. Don't let anything bad in. And I think for a church, among the worst things to come in are these. Bitterness, resentment, jealousy, disappointment, greed, and harmful desires. They're killers. And they can lie dormant in a church and in people's hearts for years. Bitterness lay dormant in my life for a long time until I recognized it. Till I was walking to school one day and I realized that I was fantasizing about someone I knew being hurt and I was glad they were being hurt. And I realized how bitter I'd become. Never realized that up to then. There are things that get into our hearts and we, we don't know them because we live with them, we get comfortable with them. Don't let anything bad in to your heart or to the church's hearts. Let us guard the heart of the church. Psalm 139, a prayer to finish. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.